0: and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for uh, this uh, time in the liturgical calendar, where we are uh, celebrating the Easter joy, uh, we journeyed together for a number of weeks during the holy season of Lent, and we were privileged to listen to some of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, he is known all over the world for his talks on the seven last words, our Lord's Passion and so much more. But uh, again, we saw that in his reflections here during Lent, that he brings us to the cross, and he unpacks the teachings of our blessed Lord from the cross. Uh, That beautiful sermon from Mount Calvary, the seven last words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son, and to the disciple he loved, Behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. And Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This beautiful sermon from Mount Calvary that we got to meditate on for the last few weeks with the help of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For the next few weeks, I will take you on a journey Uh, where we'll continue to unpack uh, Sheen's catechism. And uh, Fulton Sheen gave a catechism series uh, back in the mid-60s where he uh, penned, of course, the catechism, but uh, took the time to record it on vinyl records. And it was a kit that had 26 um, long-playing records, Uh, Of course, these 50 lessons are well over 20 hours of instruction. And I think what Fulton Sheen was trying to do was uh, give, again, his audience uh, a record of the faith. He wanted people that were looking uh, to know more about the Catholic faith to have the media that was available to them uh, do the work for him. Uh, Yes, he gave catechism classes and instruction to large groups, uh, hundreds at a time. And Fulton Sheen has hundreds of thousands of souls to his record and gave instruction for many, many years and uh, loved sharing the faith. And so he recorded this catechism series and we will uh, share a few of those uh, lessons with you over the next few weeks. And uh, we won't be able to do them all within a calendar year uh, because, again, we have Lots of other things we want to share with you too, but still each week we'll give one of those lessons. And of course we will share some of his very popular television shows and some of his radio addresses along the way. So uh, I I tell you, every week you will come away with something new, that's for sure. Okay, so today we will share a reflection from his 1946 Catholic Hour recordings And the topic of this reflection is titled, An Exhortation to a Bride and Groom. And then, during the second half of our broadcast today, we will share Fulton Sheen's Catechism lesson, speaking on the topic of the Blessed Trinity. And so may I invite you now just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen as he gives a reflection titled, Exhortation to a Bride and Groom. Please enjoy.
1: Today our speaker, the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, delivers the third in his series of talks on the general subject, Love on Pilgrimage. Monsignor Sheen has entitled this address, Exhortation to a Bride and Groom. Monsignor Sheen. Friends, It used to be, and it perhaps still is, a tradition of the sea that captains go down with a ship. Until a generation or so ago, everyone recognized that there was one ship a person ought not to leave, even when he thought it was sinking. And that was the home. But in 30 of the largest cities of the United States during the first part of 1945, there was one divorce for every two marriages, which means roughly that 50% deserted their ships despite the orders of the great captain. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. The very fact that a first marriage born in love can be broken for a second marriage desired in love proves that the most beautiful word in our language, has been distorted by the lie of Satan so that what we call love today is nothing more than a confused mixture of sentimental pathos, disguised egotism, Freudian complexes, frustrated living and weakness of character. But I am not here concerned with divorces, only with the articulation of the doctrine of our Lord on marriage, which is clear and irrevocable. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if the wife shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. For that reason, all Christians vow in the marriage ceremony that they will love one another until death do them part. The great advantage of the vow is that it guards the couples against allowing the moods of time to override reason, and thus protects the general interest from cancelling out particular interests. There is no way to control capricious solicitation except by a vow. It may be hard to keep, but it is worth keeping because of what it does to exalt the character Once its inviolable character is recognized before God, an impulse is given to self-examination, the probing of one's faults and new efforts at charity. It is too terrible to contemplate what would happen to the world if our pledged words were no longer bonds. Could one nation extend credit to another nation if the compact of repayment was signed with reservations? what queer corruption of our national soul would result if one year we pledged that there would be no territorial changes without the freely expressed wishes of the people concerned and in another year recognized a government imposed by force. If domestic contracts can be broken at the will of either party, then why not international contracts? For someone to say two years after marriage... I gave my vow at the altar, yes. But since I am in love with someone else, God would never want me to keep my vow. That is just like saying, I promise not to steal my neighbor's chickens. But since I fell in love with that handsome Plymouth rock, God would never want me to keep my promise. Once we decide in any matter that passion takes precedence over truth, erotic impulse over honor, then how prevent the stealing of anything once it becomes vital to someone else? Then the very violence of passion becomes the basis of usurpation, which is the law of the jungle, the routine of barbarism. When I marry young couples at the altar at a nuptial mass, I always give them an exhortation. Perhaps you'd like to hear a few of the ideas i tell them as this great sacrament is received. As they come to the altar steps, I say to them, you are standing at about the only place in all the world where contracts and vows are still regarded as sacred, namely before the altar of God. And before his august presence, Holy Mother Church reminds you that the sacrament you are about to receive is unbreakable except by death. First, because of the nature of love, and secondly, because of the nature of marriage itself, and thirdly, because of the spiritual reality it symbolizes. The nature of love. The lover's language is never temporal nor promiscuous. There are only two words in the vocabulary of love. You and always. You, because love is unique. Always, because love is enduring. No one ever said I will love you for two years and six months Hence all love songs have the ring of eternity about them Till the sands of the desert grow cold And forever and ever Love too as its sign language You like most lovers probably carved your names Inside of two interlocked hearts on an oak tree Why did you do this? if it was not to express the fixity and permanence of love which today is sealed as your two hearts are fused into one under fires ignited by God. True love alters not when its alteration finds. You have only one heart, and as you cannot eat your cake and have it, so you cannot give your heart away and keep it. The jealousy which has been instinctively inseparable from the beginnings of your love is a denial of promiscuity and nature's vanguard to monogamy. And in that exquisite jealousy of giving, may each of you strive to outspend the other and find that life is not long enough to sound the generosity of your love. But there's still a more profound reason for the unbreakable character of your marriage bond. Have you ever noticed that sacred scripture nowhere speaks of marriage in terms of sex, but always in terms of knowledge? For example, Adam knew Eve, his wife, who conceived. Jephthah's daughter knew no man, Joseph knew her not. And when the angel appeared to Mary to announce her motherhood, she asked, How shall this be done? I know not man. Why do sacred scripture speak of marriage in terms of knowledge? Because that is precisely what marriage is, the knowledge of the mystery of your own completeness. As individuals, we are in complete, fragmentary, isolated, the very beginning of the human race, God said, it is not good for man to be alone, for man is dependent on nature, on fellow man, and on God. The pagans had a very queer picture of this basic unity of man and woman, Plato contending that the first creature had the face of a man on one side and the face of a woman on the other. And because of some great crime, Zeus cut the creature in two. The two fragments have been wandering about the world ever since, never destined to be completely happy until they enter the Elysian fields. And under this crude image, the pagans had seized upon the basic truth that sin did introduce separation, divorce, and fragmentation into the universe, the isolation of God and man, man and himself, man and woman when finally the divine nuptials of divinity and humanity in the person of Christ were celebrated at the altar of the new Eden, Mary, the unity of two in one flesh was restored in the sacrament of matrimony. Isolation ended. Reciprocity was established. Man, you woman, and woman, you man, in a unity so profound and deep that St. Paul calls it The great mystery. If your marriage were only a question of flesh, it would have little more sacredness than the relation of animals, promiscuous and transitory. But once it is regarded as a knowledge of the mystery of your completeness, it follows that it is binding through life. Just suppose, for example, that you never knew before that St. Augustine was born in 354 and died in 430 but now you came to really know it for the first time. Once you really knew it and identified it with yourself, you never again could put yourself back into ignorance. So long as time endured, you would be dependent upon the one who communicated to you that knowledge. And in like manner, once you come to the knowledge of your completeness through another, you never again can put yourself back into incompleteness and ignorance. So long as time endures, you are dependent upon the one who gives you the knowledge. You can go on using the knowledge of your completeness once you acquired it, as you can go on reciting a poem once you know it, but you can never reacquire the knowledge. The repetition and enjoyment of the knowledge never is the same as the initiation which took you out of ignorance into knowledge. The union creates a unity, and the unity is born of the fact that physically only one person can communicate the knowledge. Therefore, a bond is created with the person which is as enduring as life. No one else in all the world can add to it. The woman can never return to virginity nor the man to ignorance. Two persons have revealed to each other the inner secret and found the completeness of life. And what has happened is deeper than the loss of a physical counterpart to incompleteness. For the change is registered in the mind and the heart and the soul of both alike. A new relationship is established. That of responsibility toward the other for solving the riddle of life And since the change induced in one another is lifelong, the responsibility itself is lifelong. Faithfulness toward each other, therefore, will be a consequence of the fact that through this young man, you will have become a woman. And through her, you will have become a man. So profound does this unity of the flesh reach. So deep is its center in human nature that other lesser unities may not deter it. For as God said, wherefore a man shall leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be two in one flesh. And finally you will notice that the epistle of your nuptial mass remind you that you are the fleshy symbols of the union of our Lord and his church. You remember the words of the epistle of this mass? Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it. This is a great sacrament, but I speak in Christ and in the church. As our blessed Lord took upon himself his bride, the church, unspotted and unpolluted, not for three years, nor 33, but for all eternity. And as Christ would never leave the church he espoused, so may neither you who symbolize that love leave one another. As the church receives the spiritual gifts from Christ, so you, the wife, shall receive the inner gifts of your husband, not as lifeless treasures to be buried, but as germs from which will come new life in the Holy Spirit. You, therefore, shall be bound to one another, not in a collective egotism, but because you are symbols of a love that is as deep as the unity of Christ and his chaste bride, which is the church. As the Lord possesses nothing outside of his church, and as the church possesses nothing except her love for him, so your married life will be not a mutual exchange of services, but a living fellowship in which each takes all the other has or is and uses it for the benefit of the other for the sake of the love of God. The Church is asking you then this morning, in effect, what guarantee will you give that you will love one another until death do you part if you say, I give the pledge of my word, The church will answer, words and pacts can be broken as the history of our world too well proves. If you say, I give the pledge of a ring, the church will again answer, rings can be broken and lost, and with them the memory of a promise. Only when you stake your eternal salvation as a guarantee of your fidelity to your vows, will the church consent to unite you as man and wife. Your life thus becomes bonded at the foot of the altar, signed with the sign of the Eucharist which you both receive into your souls this morning as a pledge of the unity in the spirit and as the foundation of your unity in the flesh. I notice, too, that your wedding ring is not thin and fine like most wedding rings. It is wide and thick, like my mother's ring, which I always thought was a beautiful symbol of true married love, as high as heaven, as deep as the sea, as solid as God's love for man. Always remember that it takes more than two to make love. It takes three, you and you and God. May your marriage be faithful, happy, and long. And as you thrill to the joys of one another's companionship and are cast into ecstasies of love's delight, often ask yourselves these questions. If a human heart can make you so happy, what must be the great heart of God? If the spark is so bright, oh, what must be the flame? God
0: you. you. are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Bishop Sheen Presents with your host, Dal Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection on marriage. And uh, can you imagine uh, being just a, a young couple and it is your wedding day? And Archbishop Sheen is marrying you. And he gives you that talk, that challenge that he lays down, and how uh, serious the commitment has to be that uh, you need to call on God. You need to really live what he would say that it takes three to get married. The man, the woman, and God. And so how many of us think that way these days? We look at the numbers and we see how marriage is uh, at a crossroads, it seems. It's um, difficult. It seems to find couples that want to stay together and uh, just fulfill their marriage vows. But uh, again, we need to pray. We need to pray for married couples especially, for a beautiful grace, Uh, to enter in, to just be fortified by the sacraments, and that uh, married couples encourage one another. Uh, Again, I'm a blessed man uh, being married for almost 38 years now, and if it wasn't for God and putting God at the center uh, of uh, my wife and our lives, uh, we would wonder what would happen. So if we would be just another casualty. uh, But thank God for Fulton Sheen. Thank God for his book, Three to Get Married. And it I tell you, it is a must-read. And um, if you haven't picked up a copy, uh, there's a great book that was put together called Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. And it's uh, a book that contains two volumes, uh, the 1951 book, uh, Three to Get Married. And that book my parents uh, read when they got married in 1957. And the 1962 book, these are the sacraments. And so uh, just a beautiful collection to have uh, in every Catholic home uh, because, again, it goes through that beautiful cycle. Uh, A couple gets together and gets married. Uh, They have children, and then those children need to uh, frequent the sacraments, to be baptized, to receive Holy Communion. Confession and, of course, marriage. And so, uh, again, you have a book that explains all those sacraments. So uh, Fulton Sheen, his 1962 book has some beautiful pictures in it. And you may have seen it uh, out there. Uh, But, again, it is a great resource. So uh, Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, it's uh, published by Sophia Institute Press, uh, available at sophiainstitute.com. And uh, also available on Amazon. But I must say, uh, the good folks at Sophia Institute Press, uh, they've extended a special discount to us Radio Maria listeners. Uh, There's a promo code that you can put uh, when you check out. Uh, It's called Sheen25. And so it's a 25% discount on uh, the books Uh, all you have to do is purchase two books from their lineup now they have nine Bishop Sheen books that they sell but they sell hundreds and hundreds of other books from great authors and so uh, visit their website sophiainstitute.com just google Sophia Institute Press and you'll find again this great resource of uh, so many books there but uh, use the promo code Sheen 25, S-H-E-E-N 25, and you'll receive that 25% discount. But uh, the book that I'm speaking of is Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. All right, so speaking of sacraments, I think of the catechism, and it's it goes hand in hand. And so we're going to share with you now a catechism lesson uh, from Archbishop Sheen. Uh, I call this uh, lesson number 11 because there are the 50 lessons Uh, that are included in this catechism series. And uh, you can find the catechism series by just Googling the Sheen Catechism, and then you'll find uh, a little, um, I want to say a web address or a link that uh, ties into the Bishop Sheen Today website. And again, just Google Sheen Catechism, and you'll find the 50 recordings that you can download for free. Uh, But for now, we'll listen to it live here on Radio Maria. And so, uh, again, it's on the Trinity. uh, And I want to say the Blessed Trinity. And so I'd invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen as he teaches us the Catechism. God love you.
1: Peace be to you. We have now come to a point where we propose to discuss the Trinity. But as I was preparing something to say about the Trinity, there came to my mind two possible objections that you might have had concerning original sin. May we treat those briefly. Uh, One objection might be this. Why is it that uh, I have to suffer on account of Adam? I had nothing to do with him. I was not involved with his sin. The answer is, yes, you were involved. So was I. We were all involved. Simply because Adam was the head of the human race. A river polluted at its source affects the entire current. Parents are infected. The infection passes on to their children. When the president declares war, We are at war, and without any individual declaration on our part, for the simple reason that the president is the head of our country. So, too, Adam was the head of the human race. What he did, we did. Just as one man's evil can affect a whole nation, as the good and honor of a father can affect the family, so, too, the disobedience of one man, Adam, affected us all. God in his mercy has repaired that harm through the obedience of the new Adam, which is our blessed Lord. The second objection that might be urged against original sin is why should I lose the blessings that Adam had on account of his sins? Is there not an injustice on the part of God to deprive me of the many favors that he had simply because he sinned. In answer to that objection it must be recalled that there is no injustice done because injustice is the depriving one of something that it is, is his due. When Adam sinned he lost only gifts Gifts that God gave him, not things to which he was entitled because of his nature. On Christmas Day, when you go around giving gifts to all of your friends, suppose you give every one of them for Christmas a velvet potholder. I come to you the day after Christmas and I say, why didn't you give me a gift? You might very well answer well, I did not even need to give gifts to my friends and to my relatives. If I did not give them anything, I would not be depriving them of that which was their due. And when I do not give you anything, I am not depriving you of that which is due you in justice. And furthermore, though we lost those gifts, we get them all back. We get back communion with God now through grace. But the other gifts which Adam lost, we do not get back until the general resurrection. And we get back more than we lost. As the priest says when he puts water into the wine at the offertory of the Mass, mirabiliter condidisti et mirabilis reformasti. What thou didst so wonderfully make that thou didst more wonderfully reform. Leaving now those objections behind, we come to the Trinity. You know how to bless yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. When you say in the name of the Father, you put your hand to your forehead. When you say in the name of the Son, you put your hand below to the breast. And when you say, The Holy Spirit, you place your hand first on your left shoulder, then on your right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Notice that when you do that, you also make the sign of cross, which is redemption. You were baptized in the name of the Trinity, and our blessed Lord often spoke of it, for example, when he said, Going, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our blessed Lord did not say, in the names of. In the name of. Because there's only one nature, the nature of God. The Trinity means there are three persons in God, and only one nature. Without going into very profound explanations of nature and person, a nature answers the question, what? And a person answers the question, who? I repeat, there are three persons in God and only one nature. And a person in the Trinity does not mean the same as a person in this world. A person in the Trinity is not someone with hands and feet and a beard, A person in the trinity means a relation, or a relationship. For example, there's a road that runs between Chicago and New York. There's a road that runs between New York and Chicago. It's the same road. But it is a different road under a different relationship. You see how out of one thing, You get the multiple? Remember your chemistry? What was the chemical symbol for water? H2O. That is its nature. It has only one nature. But is it possible to have Various relationships within that one nature? Most certainly. H2O can be a liquid, it can be ice, it can be steam. Is the liquid a different nature from H2O? No. The ice? No. The steam? No. Somehow or other, the three are in one. Just as in the sun, there is substance, light and heat, and yet only one sun. Now we're going to apply this in some way to the Trinity, which is a great and tremendous mystery. And when I get through, I will not have explained it to you. I remember once having spent an hour... Describing with analogies the Trinity to someone who was taking instructions. And I insisted very much upon the fact that it was a mystery. When I finished, the good lady said, At the beginning, you said that this was a mystery. It's no longer a mystery to me. You made it perfectly clear. Well, I said, Madam, if I made it perfectly clear to you, I did not explain it right. It should be a mystery. And it will be when I finish. There are various ways of approaching the subject, and I'm going to start very low. I'm going to start with life, to show you that life is complex. And then we're gradually going to take life right up to the Trinity, by analogy. It will seem as if I'm a million miles away from it, but bear with me. I hope the explanation will not be like that of a, a lawyer who, arguing before a judge, went into a long history of cases, legal decisions, precedents, and in a most confusing way. He had a dim suspicion that he was not perfectly clear, and he said to the uh, judge, uh, Your Honor, do you follow me? The judge had. Uh, Yes, he said, I do, but if I knew the way back, I would leave you now. So I beg you, bear with me. Life. What is it? That mysterious thing that is bound up with all of our pleasures and destiny. That thing which thrills me and saddens me sometimes seems the greatest of all gifts and at other times the most burdensome. That thing which I know best and which I know least, what is it? The first obvious answer is given to us by the commonplace things round about us. We always associate life with some kind of movement or activity. If we see an animal lying motionless in the field, it gives rise to the suspicion that possibly the animal is dead because there seems to be no movement. And then when a child is full of exuberance and joy, we say it's full of life. Notice that we associate life with movement and our explanation and description is really not. Too bad. When you come to a more scientific definition, you find out that the movement or the activity has to be what is called imminent, has to be inside of the thing. There's another kind of movement, which is called transitive. For example, the light that seems to come from phosphorus Heat that comes from a radiator. It has no power of generating heat within itself. It just passes from the outside. Stove, for example, has purely transitive activity. So does radium. Stone rolling down a hill has transitive activity. But life on the other side has this different kind of activity, which is called imminent. It is from the inside. Now let us try and find a law concerning this life. And the law is, note it carefully, the greater the imminent activity, the higher the life. In other words, the more the activity is inside of the living thing, the higher it is. All creation, as you know, is a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid is the material chemical order, and there are plants and animals and man, angels and God. We are now going to apply this law. It is so universal that it can be verified in every one of the orders. Stone, as we know, has no imminent activity, though Michelangelo, when he finished the statue of Moses, struck it with his chisel. It, see He said, "Speak." It seemed so lifelike that really it ought to be full of speech, but it had no interactivity. But there's interactivity in a plant. It always has its mouth to the breast of Mother Nature and it takes up into itself all the vital elements that are needed for it. When you come to an animal, it has higher life than the plant. The plant has the power of vegetation, has the power of generation, begetting seeds, But the animal has two powers, imminent powers that the plant does not. One is the ability to move and the other is the ability to see, to taste, to touch, and to smell what is called sense activity. A plant cannot decide during the winter to move from New York down to Florida or California. We have to be very fair in our examples. But an animal can move from light to shade. Then to thanks to its sense knowledge, it gets the outside world inside of itself. It possesses an inner world. dog can know its master's voice. When you come now to man Is there a higher activity? Oh, yes. Thinking and willing. Man has all of the imminent activity of plants and animals, but he has also something else that plants and animals have not. Knowledge and love. First of all, he thinks. He thinks thoughts like faith, justice, hope, relationship, fortitude. Where do these thoughts come from? They're not in the outside world. You never saw faith out for a walk. You never saw fortitude eating a dessert. You never saw a relationship climbing a hill. Where did you get these ideas? Your mind generated them. Your mind is fecund. Do not think the only kind of generation in the world is the generation that the animal has and that a human being has to beget its kind. There's the chaste generation of the mind, the ability to beget ideas or words. Now come to another point about the mind. When the mind begets an idea, generates something, what it generates does not fall from itself. Like an apple falls from a tree, like an animal falls from its kind when it is born, the fruit of our mind stays inside of the mind. All we got to do is just simply look into the mind, there it is. It is distinct from the mind, but it is never separate. That is why when I want to find a thought, I just go back into my mind. I do not look on a shelf for it. Take now the will. We have a will and we can choose. We can love. And we have the power, thanks to our will, of loving that which we think about. We can love the truth. Love the truth even that is in our own mind. We do not always need to love things that are outside of us. That's the amazing thing about our will. Is that our loves just like our thoughts can be imminent on the inside of us. We will not have time to touch how the angels think, but let us go to God. God is perfect life, therefore he will have perfect, imminent activity. I say perfect, Imminent activity. Since he's a spirit, we will have to understand that perfect imminent activity after the analogy of our own, namely after the intellect and our will. So we look inside of ourselves to find some faint resemblance to this divine life. Now we said what we do in our mind is to think and also to love. Now, God also thinks. And what does God think? He thinks a thought. Or a word. That thought of God, or that word of God, is distinct from him, but it is not separate from him, as my thought is not separate from my mind, though distinct from my mind. I have many thoughts. So do you. But God has only one thought. And in that one thought, or one word is contained all of the knowledge that is possible, all things that are known and can be known. God, therefore, does not need any word but that one word, which is the image and the splendor of his substance. Now, recall the words of the Gospel of John, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Who is the word that became flesh? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the thought of God. Well, you may ask, well, why do we call him the son of God? Oh, that's not difficult to answer. Did we not say that you generate the thought in your mind or the word that is in your mind? Did we not say there's a higher generation than carnal generation? Well, God generates an eternal word. Now, applying it to the human order, what do we call the principle of generation? The father. Do we not? And what is the term of generation in the earthly order? The son. All right. Instead of calling God who thinks the thinker, and instead of calling the thought or the word of God just the thought, why not call God who thinks the father? And why not call the God or the person who is the thought The Son. That is why the Word that became flesh is called the Son. That is why the psalmist said, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And the Son of God became the Son of Man, and the Son of God who became the Son of Man is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let us take another analogy. We have yet the third person of the Blessed Trinity. We said we not only think, but we also love. Now love is a relationship. It's a movement toward that which is love to unite it to oneself. I love you simply because I am communicating to you truth. Now, love is not something in me. Love is not something in you. Love is a mysterious bond uniting both of us. Love, therefore, is always to be understood as something that unites. And notice, too, that though love is is distinct from the thought, it proceeds from the thought and also from the thinker. God loves. God loves his perfection. Every being loves its perfection. The perfection of the eye is color. It loves color. The perfection of the ear is harmony. It loves harmony. The perfection of the stomach is food. It loves the food. The perfection of God, the Father is God, the Son, the perfection of God, the thinker is God, the Word is the Word of God. And the Father loves the Son. Love is not something in the Father alone. Love is not something in the Son alone. Love is a mysterious bond uniting the two. And because here we are dealing not with the personal and the biological, but with something infinite, That love cannot express itself by canticles, by words, by embraces. It cannot express itself likened to anything that we have on this earth. It can only express itself by that which signifies the very fullness and exhaustion of all giving, namely a sigh, something that lies too deep. All deep love is speechless. And that bond of love that unites Father and Son is called
0: the Holy Breath, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Love.
1: And just as the color of the perfume and the beauty of the rose do not make three roses but one, as one times one times one do not make three but one, Just as I am, I think and I love, and yet I have only one nature. So, in a far more mysterious way, there are three persons in God, and only one God. Thus, there is in God a tremendous encircling love. God is. Life, truth, and love, now we know the life is the Father, the truth is the Son, and love is the Holy Spirit. And with John Donne we say, batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but not breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand Overthrowing me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another due, labor to admit you. But, oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie me, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me
0: God. well my dear friends i want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of bishop sheen presents and i pray that you will have a blessed week and uh, look forward to sharing uh, some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable archbishop sheen with you uh, in the many weeks to come and as i said earlier i want to wish you all a happy easter And, of course, uh, again, we made it through Lent together, uh, so we will now enjoy this time. And so I would remind you to uh, read Bishop Sheen, watch Bishop Sheen, and listen to Bishop Sheen. And uh, please share uh, Bishop Sheen with your friends. And I invite you to visit our website at bishopsheentoday.com. And there on the site you'll find hundreds of free videos, audio audio recordings, and a good list of books that are available uh, that contain so many uh, treasures uh, that were written by Archbishop Sheen over many years. All right, have a great week, and may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.